Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning. I am Luke Viam. I am so happy to be with you today again at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. Um, I am on staff at a church about 15 or so minutes away from here called Westgate out in Plymouth. And there I am the small groups and adult class director. And I love it there. But I am honestly really excited that you guys have welcomed me here, not just once, but now two times. I must not have messed it up too much back in June. And I think it is really exciting what God is doing in the West Metro area and really excited what God is doing here in Watertown. I am so privileged to be a part of that. Even if it is only about twice a year that I get to speak, it is exciting to be a, a part of your community and to, to share with you what God is speaking to me and to hear um, the voice of your church as we sing our praises to the Lord together. Now, as I was thinking and um, wondering, like, what would, how would this Sunday go? How, how would it all go? To, it always gets in my mind, like, how am I going to introduce myself? How am I going to get the, the ball rolling? Because it's really, really important how you start a story, how you, how you start a message. And some of the best stories have the best uh, beginnings. I think Once Upon a Time, it's a classic. Gets your imagination going. Maybe a little more literary. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And those are stories, but with the advent of movies and all that, sometimes the best stories start with a black screen and then a line of blue text saying, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then the fanfare goes, and you're like, this is going to be a good story. Matthew, the, the author of the text we're going to be looking at today, is a fantastic storyteller. And he, I, I, I can just imagine him sitting at a desk at a table with his quill and the parchment in front of him, scratching his head like, how am I going to start the best story ever told? Because Matthew knows all the amazing things about Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. He saw the blind receive sight. He saw the infirmed heal. He, he could start any way he wants. And he has probably heard some talking about other people starting their stories in different ways. His buddy John is going to go real deep right away. But, and he knows this other guy named Luke is going to start with um, some relatives of Jesus and some amazing birth announcements. And I think Matthew is just like, you know what? I'm going to start further back, further down that family line, and I'm going to start with the, the person of faith that is Abraham. For us, 2,000 years later, it seems a really weird way to start a story with a long list of names. But I think in this long list of names, we're going to find ourselves. We're going to see a God that makes promises and a God who keeps his promises. 
See, the story I plan to tell this morning is that of a promise-making God, and then humanity's inability to grab hold of that promise, and how the promises are fulfilled in Christ, and that is how the promises can come to us. So I'm going to read the text for the morning, found in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I think the text will be right up there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, Jeconiah and his brothers, and, and that was at the time of the deportation to Babylon. As you can see, some of these names are hard to pronounce. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abadu, and Abadu, the father of Elikim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I would love to cover every name in the genealogy, but that would take a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to kind of show the highlights, specifically around to people. And I think that is what Matthew even wants us to do with how he introduces that it's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we're going to kind of focus in on Abraham and David as recipients to amazing promises that God has made. Son of Abraham. Now Abraham, we know, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. But specifically, Matthew is saying that, we, that the whole Jewish people were looking forward to one singular son of Abraham to fulfill the promises. And Matthew believes and is going to show how 
Jesus is that one son. So we're going to look a little bit at the Abraham story where the promise to him was made. We're going to open up to Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the world shall be blessed." Now, this promise is an amazing promise, to be called out from your land to do the will of God Most High. Abraham was right to respond in faith. He was right to leave his family and to go where God was leading him. And in this promise, in this initial calling, we we see some hints of what God was, was getting at. He wants to make Abraham a great nation, to have a lot of people come after him in his line, to have a great name, which means that his name would be elevated above others, and that he would be a blessing to the whole world. So that the blessing that God wants to pour out on all people would come through Abraham and his family. But what does that mean to, to be a blessing to others? What, what is God getting at? What is, he, what is he trying to do? And these are the questions that I ask myself, like, why, why call Abraham? Like, what is going on? And I, I, we get another hint of it uh, later in Abraham's story. The, this story is Abraham is waiting um, underneath a tree, and three people come up, and Abraham knows right away that these are important people. So he gets up, he prepares a meal, and he starts talking with them. finds out that um, one of them is the Lord himself. And he is going to see what's happening in these towns called Sodom and Gomorrah because he has heard that there's been great outcry there. And he wants, the Lord wants to make sure that beyond just what he's heard that he will see and experience for himself is the wickedness so great that it needs to be destroyed. And so the Lord is talking to Abraham and it, it's really interesting. It looks like... God is having this internal dialogue of, am I going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do, or am I going to keep it hidden from him? So this is Genesis 18, 19. This is what the Lord is saying to himself, being right there next to Abraham. I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I think it's really fascinating that we get this little insight into God's inner working, that he is having this dialogue. And and I I don't think there's ever a moment where God was like, I could convince myself not to tell Abraham. Like, I don't think that's what it's about. I think the, the author of Genesis is trying to give us insight into what God's big plan is. And it involves the people that will come after Abraham walking in the way of the Lord, but doing that through these two really important words, righteousness and justice. That's incredibly tied to the way God wants the world ran. 
the way I see it, it started in the Garden of Eden. God created man from the dirt to rule over all of the earth. God wanted partners in the plan of ruling creation to bringing more and more good and having blessings spill out. But I think we all know that that dream did not last very long. Our first parents took from the tree that they were commanded not to, and ever since, it has been a downward spiral away from God. But God does not want to give up on humanity, so he starts new with Abraham and his wife Sarah. The plan is that they would be a new Adam and Eve to bring all the blessings of God back to the world. But now it's beyond just ruling and taking care of the beasts, the land, and everything in them. It also includes looking after other people. And these words, righteousness and justice, have everything to do with how we're treating each other. Now, I could go into a deep dive into a word study about these words, um, but I think there are some other things that I can talk about that would be just as fruitful. And in our minds, I just want us to think that righteousness and justice is loving our neighbor as ourself. That if we want to live in a righteous way, and if we want to do justice to the people around us, we will love them. We will be in right relationship with them. We'll be reconciling when there's differences. We'll be looking out for those who are oppressed and downtrodden. I have a friend, a really good friend, and she just recently became a public defender in Minneapolis. That's a big job. Um, Specifically right after the the riots that overtook our city for a while after the, the killing of George Floyd. And never before had there been a caseload so heavy. And I think it's admirable work that she is doing being a public defender. Because she is looking out for people who could be downtrodden and oppressed, making sure they get a fair hearing. Not that those who are guilty can get away, but that they would be treated with the dignity and respect that our country Um, has promised that we would be treated innocent until proven guilty, that everyone would have a fair trial, and they would be judged by their peers, not considered guilty before a trial, treated harshly without any chance to defend themselves. And I think public defenders tried to help make righteousness and justice happen. And I also think that those who are prosecuting help make righteousness and justice happen. Because when there are crimes, like there needs to be accountability for action, and there needs to be recompense, recompense for those who have been hurt by others. So our whole court system is trying to help this righteousness, being in right relationship with each other, and justice, that the oppressed are not downtrodden, working together. And the state does not do it perfectly, But I think for ourselves, what we need to imagine is, I want to treat other people the way I would want to be treated. I I, I think Jesus really understood this when he said the law and the prophets, everything that God is trying to command is summed up in treating others the way you would want to be treated, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that works good on peer-to-peer, but what would happen if a king ruled with righteousness and justice? If a whole society was ordered and structured that way, that would be pretty good news. That would be pretty great. I think the world would get better instead of worse if there was a king like that. 
And God's plan is to do that through the family of Abraham. And we see that through the names that, that come down. Because God is working with human partners all through the line of Abraham. We see that Abraham then becomes Isaac. And God is working the promise through Isaac, not through Ishmael, his older brother. And then we see from Isaac, it goes to Jacob, not his brother Esau. See, God is working with a specific line. He is trying to get to a certain individual years and years down the line. And when we get from Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Judah, and Judah is another important name because he is the one tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel where the kings would come from. And that idea comes from a blessing that Jacob gave to Judah, that he would be the kingly line. But also what's really interesting, the way Matthew writes it, is this is the first introduction of a woman into the line of David. And not just a woman, a woman that is outside of the family of Abraham, a Gentile woman. And not just a Gentile woman, a woman that seems to be doing everything wrong. The story of Tamar and Judah is very much so not PG-13. It's pretty explicit, but what, how it ends, I think, is really interesting and worth looking at. I believe we have the text. Maybe not. And that's all good. So what it comes down to is Judah promises his son to Tamar, but never makes good on that promise. So Tamar, much like Abraham and Sarah, devise a plan to get a child. And when Judah hears about this, even though he is the father, he is upset. He wants to burn her at the stake. But when she reveals that he will be the father of her children... His, what he says, what comes out of his mouth is, she is more righteous than I am. See, there's that word popping up again. And it's righteousness found in a very unlikely spot. From a woman who would, could be thrown into a fire because of what she's done. But she is more righteous. We see that the nations get in those who have terrible backgrounds get in into this genealogy. It's not just limited to, to one ethnicity. There is a way for everybody to get in. Can't go through the, the next handful of names. We need to get down to David. Because with David, we get the fulfillment of, of some of the promises to Abraham, some of the promises to Judah, because David becomes a king after God's own heart. David becomes that king where it seems like, oh, I think this might be the guy. This might be the guy to rule with righteousness and justice. He might set up a whole government where people are treated the way they ought to be treated. God can really use David to bring good things into the world. And he does for a while. He does so good for long enough that God even makes him an even bigger promise. And this is found in 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 17. It 
And I have been with you, and this is the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God just entered into an even deeper agreement with David. And you can see some of the allusions to the promises he made to Abraham in there, too. That just like God wanted to make Abraham's name great, now he's going to make David's name great. Just like there was going to be an offspring after Abraham, now there's going to be an offspring after David, who will be king forever and ever. One that comes from David's own line. And then this first section ends. Because we go from Abraham to David. And we see that this first section is all about God making promises. Big promises. Promises that are going to change the world. Promises that are going to set everything wrong right. I'm wondering, are you waiting for any promises from the Lord? Are you waiting for something you feel God has spoken to you to be fulfilled? If you are, you can find your place in this part of the story. God makes promises. He makes big promises, and he makes them to us. All depends on now what are we going to do with those promises that God has made. Because we see in the next 14 names, a long list of kings that don't fulfill the promise that don't keep their end of the agreement, that, that fail to grab hold of the promises that God has made to Abraham and to David. We have 14 names, three, three good kings in those 14. The, the line the, the prophets used is, and the, this king did good in the eyes of the Lord as their father David, three times other 11 times, and this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, unlike his father David. Humans, we have a really bad track record of making good on the promises that God is making to us. And we see that right off the bat in these names, because we see David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And you're like, oh, 
I don't think that's how the story is supposed to go. It seems like right off the bat, even David messes up. And the son that he produces, Solomon looks great for quite a while. But we even see that his heart is turned astray. And he, he ends up not dealing with righteousness and justice. He collects slaves. He builds a house for the Lord, yes. But then he builds an even more extravagant house for himself. Not just for himself, but for his 300 wives, his 700 concubines. He doesn't trust solely in the Lord. He starts trusting in the ways of men. Starts trusting in making alliances with Egypt. And we see further and further down that all those alliances become with Assyria, with Babylon, with all these neighboring countries that God wanted to use Israel as an example of doing a kingdom differently, of doing it with righteousness and justice. So in the midst of all these failures, what's God's response? When he starts seeing us mess it up again and again and again and again and again, does he just give up? Does he just throw in the towel with humanity? He would be right to. But no, he keeps speaking. He keeps, and in fact, it seems like in his words through the prophets, he's doubling down on his promises. He's doubling down on his message of there will be a future king. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, towards the end of the kingdom, it's right before Babylon takes over, he loves using the phrase, The days are coming, declares the Lord. Just look ahead a little past the horizon. The days are coming. And one of the most specific, like, prophecies about this future Davidic king is in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. See, there it is. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us, us the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven him, then they shall dwell in their own land. See, in the midst of human failure, God is saying, you know what? I'm going to continue to make a way. The story is not over. Righteousness and justice will still come through a king from the line of David. And you know what? Beyond just righteousness. He won't just rule with righteousness and justice. He will be our righteousness. The prophet Isaiah also has words about this future king. I I feel like we read these every Christmas and they're like, they're the, the best of the best. Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. And this is Isaiah talking to one of the not so great kings of um, Judah at the time. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, through, and this is through Isaiah, ask a sign of the Lord. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. It can be anything. But Ahaz says, I, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. 
trying to sound more holy than he actually is. And he said, so this is, and the Lord said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? You have to weary God as well. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even in the midst of us, uh, of this king trying God's patience, he's like, you know what, I, there's going to be a king, and even if you wear me out, I will not abandon you. I will be with you. A couple chapters later, in chapter 9, we, we have this, which is just kind of the best. So Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is doubling down on his promises, even in the midst of human failure. And at the end of this section, it's the deportation to Babylon, and it looks like all hope is gone. There is no longer even a king. There's no king of the line of David on the throne. In fact, there isn't even a throne to sit on. So is all the hope gone? Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? <laughs> I know I have. Maybe he said something like, God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. Usually pretty hard to keep up our end of the agreement. And you feel like, wow, God gave me what I asked for, but I'm not keeping my end. Can it just slip away out of my hands? You're just waiting for it to fall away. I, I think this is probably how the people of Israel thought when they were deported. Man, we had such an opportunity, and it looks like it's all for nothing. But that's not where the story ends. Because there's another 14 names on the list. And these names show that God is faithful to the very end. The line is unbroken, and I feel like we're all looking for the chosen one. Like, all of the, the books we're reading, the, the movies we're watching, we're, we're always, we love it when there's one. Like, this is the one who's going to save us all. I mean, the Matrix series is all about Neo being the one. Anytime there's a prophecy in a story pointing to the one, I think of Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia with the, the four children. Even, like I said before, Star Wars. Anakin, he was supposed to be the chosen one. But he didn't really live up to bring balance to the force, did he? I especially think of Tolkien's work in The Lord of the Rings, how there's this character who's initially introduced as Strider. He's just a wanderer. He's living in exile, living, living in the wilderness, no place to rest his head. But throughout the story, we see, oh, he's not just a wanderer. He's a king from a line that's never been broken. And he is on a mission 
to get to the throne and to unite all humans against the forces of evil. See, Tolkien was pretty steeped in the, in the scriptures. And even if he wasn't trying to write an allegory, he did a pretty good job at it. See, as humans, we're looking for that one who can save us. We want someone who is like us but better than us. Jesus, Matthew uses the word the Christ to describe him. And Christ is just the Greek word for anointed. Uh, In Hebrew, it would be Messiah. It's the idea that this one is the one. He's anointed. He's the promised king. And not just to show using the word Christ, but Matthew is really smart and clever. And so he really crafts his whole genealogy to show that Jesus is the one that we've all been looking for. Uh, He's playing a numbers game, and he uses uh, a double, a list of three double sevens to, like, ramp up the fulfillment that is in Jesus. These both three and seven are, are numbers that show completion throughout the whole Hebrew text. And so Matthew is kind of working up the rhetoric of this is the one. We should all expect that at the end of the third list, the, the sixth, seventh, that this is the one. And I, I think we could really get concerned. Like, is, is this actually Jesus' line? Like, was it only 14 generations from Abraham to King David, which is like a thousand years? But then it's still 14 generations between the, the exile and Jesus, which is only about 500 years. Like, the math doesn't quite add up, but Matthew is doing something more. He has crafted the perfect theological list to show God's faithfulness and the fulfillment. And I'm not saying that Matthew doesn't care about history. Matthew cares so deeply about history, but he sees in history the faithfulness of God. I mean, throughout the whole gospel, we're going to see that Matthew is very concerned with history. He thinks that everything about Jesus is tied to his birth, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, historical facts. But he wants to highlight the theological importance inside, behind, and lifting up those facts. Because this is just the start of the gospel. Throughout his whole story, Matthew is writing how Jesus brings righteousness and justice everywhere he goes. His message is of loving your neighbor as yourself. His message is to look and care for those who fall between the cracks. To think in such a way that the last might be first and the first might be last. And people aren't downtrodden because of their job, their background, their ethnicity. All of these people from all different walks of life have access to Jesus and he welcomes them with open arms. See, Jesus is the fulfillment. He does everything that God has promised. But he isn't just the fulfillment. He doesn't just get it, but he also makes it available to us because he becomes the, the king who becomes our righteousness. Because he shows that the promises is for all humans, 
all humanity, and Jesus opens up the way back to God to receive those. He does it through his love and his self-sacrifice. He becomes our sin so that we might become his righteousness. He endures the shame and the scorn and the condemnation we deserve so that we can have the freedom that he deserves. And I know this is a great story. It's the best story ever written. And I know most of us here in the room believe it. We believe it so deep down. But I'm wondering, what is the story saying to us now? Today? Where are we in the story? The story of promise, failure, fulfillment. Because if we get beyond the text, and we'll, we'll get into the text with how it, what the promises of God are to us now, but for me, as I think about the promises that God has made to me, my calling has felt like a promise. God has called me to be a pastor, to, to proclaim his word, and there have been so many times when I could have messed it up. So many times that I have messed it up. I am not the perfect pastor. There's lots of ways that I don't feel like I deserve to be up here. But God is faithful. He doesn't treat us according to our sins, but continues to give us grace. We get what we don't deserve. And I think that's because the, these promises that God is making, they're not transactional. He's not a formula to just believe is true, but he's a person to trust. He's a person to be in relationship with. These promises are less like an equation and more like marriage vows. And I've not been married as long as some in the room, but I haven't kept my marriage vows perfectly. There have been times when I've gotten upset, said something mean, so many ways that I have not perfectly fulfilled them. But Kenzie hasn't just ran out on me, the first sign of failure. No, she stays in it. She works with me. We want our relationship to become better. And it usually takes a lot of like, consequences, would be a bad word, but like compromise. A lot of help, a lot of coming together rather than breaking apart. That is what God is trying to do. Whenever there's failure, he gets his hands dirtier, enters into our brokenness deeper, tries to show us more and more of his overwhelming love for us. It could be like vows, it could be like parents. How many of our children have failed us? How many of us children have failed our parents? I think, um, in my mind, it goes to, like, driving a car, driving the family car. Like, you might get promised when you're 14, 15, that when you turn 16, you can, you can get wheels. You can have the keys to the car. Um, and if there isn't a lot of contingencies, it can sound like a very open-ended promise. Like, oh, if I turn 16, when I turn 16, I'm going to get the keys to the car. But that might not always be the case. These parents know better, they're wiser, they can see that, hey, the grades are slipping. The, the priorities seem to be a little out of whack. You're starting to be with a group that if you had freedom, you could get into a lot more trouble. 
I think we might need to hold the keys back from you for a time until you can gain some trust, some, learn some responsibility. But I think what we see in God is even more than that of he's not withholding. Like he, he becomes a personal chauffeur. No questions asked. He's, he, he loves so much like, I can't trust you to drive. I'm going to drive. I'm going to get you where you need to go. From the beginning, God has been trying to partner with humans to rule the world. And when humans messed it up, he decides to become a human, to save humans. Like, that's the beauty of Christmas, that God condescended to our level. He became a man so that men, and I mean that in the general humanity, can enjoy the promises of God. His righteousness and justice, God's righteousness and justice becomes humanity's righteousness and justice. He gives it to us as a gift. God gives it to Jesus, and Jesus, like the perfect big brother, gives it to us. And not only those who are his siblings um, in the ethnicity from the line of Abraham, but we see from those names of women that it's available to all. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles, white, black, Republicans, Democrats. The doors are open to any who would receive by faith. Now, I do want to talk about what promises are given to us individually and corporately found in the text. God promises never to leave or forsake us. He promises to comfort us on our darkest days. He promises to give us a new family, new parents, brothers and sisters, a whole community united by love. He promises us reconciliation, that relationships that are broken can be mended. He promises us that we can experience deep, abiding peace even in the most chaotic situations. And with that peace, he promises us joy, elation beyond what we can imagine. He promises us that our failures are not final, that our sins do not define us, and that even death will not have the final word. He promises that Jesus will come back and complete what he started. That is part of what Advent is all about, looking back to Christmas to see the promises fulfilled as we look forward to the return of the king to finish what he has started. There are two texts that I want to close with. I'm just going to read them. These are promises that nothing can interrupt. First, first Peter 5, 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that amen is like, you can take this promise to the bank. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. He will shoulder all of your cares and anxiety. That's the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul has something to say to us as well. This is from Romans 8. What then are we going to say about all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the blessings of heaven. Who's going to bring any charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who has justified them. Who is going to condemn them? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who was condemned for them. But more than just being condemned and dying, he was also raised and vindicated for them. He is right now at the right hand of God. He is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All these things are the worst things humans can throw at each other. I mean, it's written, For your sake, God, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. These things can't separate us. Because Paul says, even in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We win an exceeding victory in these things through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or the things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. The promises of God have been securely bought by the blood of Christ, given to us freely as a gift if we would receive them with open hands, giving our allegiance to Christ alone. He is our faithful big brother. And he has come, and he is coming again. So get your hopes up, church. Thank you, Luke. And uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close us in a word of prayer uh, before we move on to, to some announcements. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your promises. I thank you for how you have moved throughout all of history. God, from creation to Abraham to David to sending your son to today, God, you are at work. We thank you for your promises. And Lord, we believe you, and we are getting our hopes up for the day when you will come again. I pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, I am uh, Pastor Bruce. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are excited that it is the Advent season, and uh, we are celebrating 
the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we would invite you to come back and do that with us next week on Christmas Eve. We will have services both in the morning and in the evening. They will be different. Uh, you can come to both. You can come to one. Uh, we will also still love you if you choose to go with family to another location. But we would love, 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 love to see you and have you join us uh, Christmas Eve morning and Christmas Eve evening. Also, with it being December, we have a lot of things that are going on. While our Wednesday family nights have ended for the season and some of our classes, we still have youth group happening this Wednesday. We still have um, our membership class continuing. And January is right around the corner. And I know that for some of you, December is that time of year where you're thinking of all of the end of the year giving. And I would love to encourage you to keep in mind Watertown Evangelical Free Church. The giving that you do to our church um, helps push forward, like Luke said, the message of the gospel to our community. It doesn't just stay within these walls. It is the way that we fuel the ministry of our church to take that good news, that message of righteousness and justice to the world around us and to those in need. And so I would encourage you, you can give online, you can give through the giving box. Uh, if you have further questions about that, I would love to talk to you as would any one of our elders and staff. That being said, I thought it appropriate to end this morning. As we started uh, with Matthew, let's end with Matthew. With the Great Commission and the challenge that we have to be disciple makers. When Jesus, or sorry, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, and this is his promise that we end with this morning, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.